to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. We are doing another live taping with a fabulous guest who we'll introduce momentarily. Uh, but we are back at Downtown Uncorked in Downtown Bryan, and we have an audience again this evening who hopefully will have some questions for us as we wrap to a close. We're going to do a slightly different uh, format today since both Greg and our guest, who I'll introduce momentarily, share some common expertise rather than bringing in someone else for the panel. We're just going to open it up for a panel conversation pretty much from the beginning. I'm going to introduce our guest, ask her a couple of questions about how she identifies as a researcher and some of her recent work, and then we're just going to dive full into the Middle East. And I will be as much <laughs> an audience member as anything at that point. Um, so, uh, welcome back, Greg. Uh, you weren't with me last time, I think, when uh, the last episode that was published. So I missed you terribly. I know, I missed you terribly, too. The episodes are not the same without you. So today we uh, have the pleasure of having Dr. Erin Snyder with us. She's one of our colleagues. Greg is her boss. Mm, so, to the extent to that, the extent that, that we anyone have. in academics will be calibrated <laughs> To the extent that anyone in academics has a boss. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Well, when we had Dr. Lori Taylor on, I referred to her as my boss. So yeah. I feel like that's only fair. Uh, professor Snyder is an assistant professor of international affairs at Texas A&M University. Uh, within the Bush School of Government and Public Service, and she is a Carnegie Fellow at the New American Found New America Foundation. She was a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University's uh, Niehaus Center for Globalization and Governance, and a Gates Scholar at the University of Cambridge. Uh, her research and book report focuses on the political economy of aid and development in the Middle East. Uh, book project. I went with a book report. Um, it's much more concise. <laughs> I think it, I, I think in sixth grade she wrote a book report on it. No, <laughs> no winning with this crowd. Okay. Um, she does a lot of work on aid and development in the Middle East with ongoing work examining the economic underpinnings of the 2011 Arab uprisings and the politics of transitional aid. So, uh, And her research has been published or is forthcoming from International Studies Quarterly, PS Political Science and Politics, and Middle East Policy. I think that's a, that's a pretty... That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, so now we know all about you. So um, now that we've got the bio part done, um, tell me a little bit, or tell the listeners a little bit about uh, how what type of research you do. I mean, we've mm -hmm. talked about some publications and broadly focus area. What questions really, what's really driven your research from like an interest standpoint? Yeah, I can tell you um, in a nutshell um, a little bit about how I even became interested, yeah. um, I think, in, in what I'm working on. So sort of broadly, um, my interests are uh, focused on the politics of development, the political economy of development in the Middle East, um, and definitely the politics of foreign aid, uh, whether that's more broadly or particular to this region uh, as well. Um, when I first began the work that I'm, I'm focused on now, um, I was somehow um, unsatisfied with, I think, the, the scholarly approach towards understanding um, big questions about democracy and democratization in the Arab world, um, and kind of the, the starting point uh, for the research that I'm working on in some ways was uh, a 2005 study, and this was at the very beginning of my, uh, my doctoral work, that was trying to understand the impact of the U.S.'s uh, spending on democracy programs in the world. Totally, an attempt to really understand the question, does spending on democracy aid work? Does it actually spread democracy? Does it cultivate democracy? And the results of this study, it was a cross-national aggregate study, concluded that yes, 
actually it works everywhere but in the Middle East. And for Middle East scholars, I think that they more had some ideas about why that why that didn't resonate, why things weren't working. Um, but intellectually for me, um, the way that even people were talking about democracy and democratization seemed very particular uh, and not really reflecting, let's say, the views and the voices of citizens in the Arab world. Uh, and so reflected in some sense, uh, some sense one conception of democracy uh, that was very much focused on the Western uh, liberal de democratic focus uh, of the term itself. And so um, in kind of the first year of my doctoral work, I was kind of, you know, um, trying to understand what I thought were shortcomings of the study, what it would look like if we wanted to understand democracy or why democracy aid wasn't working, well then what would it look like to ask the people who were the recipients of this aid uh, and to get a better sense of what was actually happening on, on the ground. Um, and so kind of to circle back to your questions and sort of what drives me or what I'm really interested in and fascinated by, um, it, it is this question, kind of a bottom-up understanding of development um, from citizens within the region and how they're understanding uh, different efforts uh, that have happened in the region. And so, as you've sought to look at this differently, what have what have you found with taking some of these bottom-up approaches? I mean, I assume that it's much more complicated <laughs> than just it did work or it didn't work and boo, it doesn't work in the Middle East. Right, and I think, well, for, for, for starters, you know, when, when we as scholars ask if something's working or not working, well, what does that even mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certain constraints that people in Washington, policy practitioners, people that work in foreign aid, uh, have to work with, right? So for uh, as an example, if we talk about something like democracy aid, for the people that work in this area, whether they're scholars or practitioners, people that work in democracy aid in Latin America, the Middle East, um, the Balkans, etc., they conceptualize this aid as something that is best measured meaningfully in generational terms. So if we want to understand how a democracy program is working, it makes sense to think about the looking at success in a 10 to 15 year murder. Well, the way that a lot of government programs are structured, they have to come up with measures uh, for folks in Congress who approve the budgeting for these kinds of programs. And so every, every year. Every year, right? <laughs> every year. No, not at all. So they might be sympathetic, and that might, you know, intellectually, this, this makes sense for what we understand maybe our understanding of democracy to be, and that it takes a long time to see um, the development of that. In, in D.C., you know, when you talk with people that work at the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is the primary agency that is in charge of democracy aid, um, they'll tell you with great frustration, each year we have to go to Congress and you know, ask, respond to this question, well, how much did democracy grow in Egypt from last year to this year? And that's a dumb question. <laughs> it is a fundamentally dumb question, but you have to come up with some indicators, something to be able to sell and to maintain, maintain interest for members of Congress to continue funding these programs. So uh, between my work and the work of a lot of our other really great scholars, they've talked about you know incentive structures, right? What's driving programs? Um, scholars that work on international peacekeeping, for example, will tell you, like, well, if we, if we just think about international peacekeeping and we un want to understand how it could be more effective, it makes sense that such efforts are going to work better if the locals themselves have a voice in those efforts and ideally are driving those efforts, right? And that's a, I think most of us, that sounds like common sense. Yeah, this is parallels to like how we think about uh, doing projects domestically with like local governments or at the local level. Absolutely. You want to have engagement and buy-in from the actual community or it doesn't work when you just come in and say, here's how we're going to do it. Exactly. And so from the, from the democracy aid standpoint, it's like, well, what would it look like if the democracy aid program 
were driven by local interests in Morocco, uh, in Bosnia, wherever. Um, and so thinking about what, what sort of institutional mechanisms are in place that are preventing that from happening, um, and kind of locking in, in some ways, one particular approach. Um, and I'm really fascinated, just beyond even the Middle East, just thinking about the role of ideas in political economy, why some ideas went out over others, um, despite in some cases when we have evidence and you know of learning that things aren't working the way they should, why do we keep seeing the same kinds of programs that aren't working properly? That's why we just kind of stick to those same narratives and those yeah. same stories. It's just teaching class about decision making and biases and cognitive biases and how we keep repeatedly telling ourselves these same stories even when they aren't working and how we have such a hard time kind of changing our narratives about things. Yeah. We were mentioning that, so this might be the only time when I can work PA in carefully. Um, so when you're, when you're talking to me about it, so I'm going to jump in while I have the opportunity. But one of the things that you mentioned about USAID and kind of meeting measures every year and how that would be different from like a bottom-up approach, mm -hmm. I mean, thinking one of the kind of common refrains from management is you get what you measure. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine this is probably emblematic in these aid programs as well when you go through and pick these measures in a specific way so that you can have some yearly report of change in them, that guides the policy process to focusing on those measures in ways that I imagine aren't always helpful. Yeah, and I think that, I, I absolutely agree, and I think that there's a certain path dependency that takes effect at some point, and that is really, really difficult to reverse course because because bureaucracy, right? Yeah. And so I think that in the Middle East, um, you know, when you ask this question, why isn't democracy working? Um, there are some people, and they're not completely wrong in some ways, that, that will say, um, sarcastically in some cases, well, it was never meant to work. That the US or other actors have no interest in what some people would say real democracy, what the people want. And there's some truth to that, I think, too. But I also think mm -hmm. that it's, there's, there is, is nothing really nefarious about why Eight efforts haven't been working better. Um, I think you know. I would just say you know we can we can think about the banality of bureaucracy at the end of the day too. That there are lots of uh, really good people that are engaged in these efforts who are struggling to cobble something and, and to get something good out of the system. But they have to make um, concessions and um, some sort of compromise to be able to get some semblance of a program through. Um, I'll give you an example. So a couple of years ago, um, when I was in Morocco, I was uh, talking with some of the people that are, um, that are working on the democracy, the U.S.'s democracy program in Morocco. Um, they'll say, to, to what I was just mentioning earlier, ideally, the program would look like this, right? Reflecting Morocco's political context, um, the nature of um, civil society in the country, et cetera. So you know, this, is what one, this is what the program would, would, would look like ideally. But we can't get any money for that program. Right? So from this, this woman's perspective, this program, which made sense for Morocco and was the best choice for a democracy and governance program, was not going to elicit any response from Washington. And so she said, and this was I think in 2000, this was in 2014, she said, the only way that we're going to be able to get the attention of Washington is to frame this program in terms of counterterrorism or counterviolence programs. Right? And so in some ways, there, there's a marketing component of this too, right? So we can take this same program, but now how do we pitch it in a way that a senator or a representative or you know, people within upper leadership and AID are going to respond to too? Because they, that's part of the system. And I think that in some ways, scholars haven't paid enough attention to thinking about these components from the policy end and the compromises. And so if we know more about that, then that also helps us, I think, to understand why programs maybe aren't as responsive as they could be. So 
one of the things that you mentioned early on that I think we've been kind of giving specific examples of mm-hmm. and batting around a little bit is the idea of the political economy for actually engaging in mm-hmm. the democratic aid and financial aid. So what are... Uh, the U.S., for example, chooses some countries to invest more in uh, financial aid towards democracy efforts than others. Mm-hmm. And my guess is it's not based completely on need, for example. That that might... You would be right about that. <laughs> That's my colleague. <laughs> Greg couldn't even a straight face to me saying it. Smart so. <laughs> so what are some of the what are some of the motivations that say the U.S. or other democratic countries, since this is kind of the lens we've been looking at, when do they engage in financial aid towards other countries and why? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll say that, you know, certainly for people that either study the Middle East or follow events in the region closely, they wouldn't be surprised to know that our aid is not driven purely for developmental reasons. Uh, and Egypt is the primary example of that. You know, some people say... Uh, well, Israel might be the primary well, example Israel's of that. Well, Israel is linked to that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, Israel, for all sorts of reasons which one can agree with or disagree with... Sure gets the highest per capita American mm-hmm. aid outside of war zones like Afghanistan right. and, and, and Iraq, right? Uh, but none of that aid is directed to specific development programs or democracy programs. It's, it's, it's given as budget support yeah. to, to the Israeli government, right? Whereas our aid to other places like Egypt, Morocco, yeah. uh, is administered through American mm. actors and contractors, mm-hmm. right? Sorry, I'm jumping no, in. You no, go ahead. No, but, that, but that's, that's exactly it. Right. And so when you look at how much the, the U.S. has traditionally, up until I would say the last five years, given to Egypt, is that reflective of the state, you know, the, the poverty statistics, developmental mm. indicators in Egypt? No. Um, right. And this is and, and certainly not in our aid to Israel, which no. is, uh, aside from the smaller oil states, the yeah. highest per capita income. Yeah, in the, the Middle and East. And the money we give to Egypt is a reflection of the Israel factor, right? right? right. Which is that, you know, um, uh, after Camp David, more or less kind of a reward for keeping the peace between the two countries. Yeah. Um, and this is something I think that also doesn't get enough attention in terms of understanding. Well, the terms of that aid have always been tricky. With Israel, with the U.S. aid to Israel, it's a direct cash transfer. And with the U.S.'s aid to Egypt, it's always been um, uh, based on uh, you know, Egypt, you know, giving indication of how it needs to be used developmentally. So the U.S. insisting that we're going to give you, let's say, $200 million for economic assistance, etc. And the Egyptians have always resented the terms of this. And that's also important to know in terms of their resistance towards um, um, all sorts of things that the U.S. has asked the government to do, whether it's meeting, uh, doing better in the realm of human rights, um, financial reform, etc., and it's something. If you study power and politics, you know if you, they know the Israelis are getting a direct yeah. cash transfer, and they're being asked to, you know, well, we'll give you this 1.3 billion dollars in aid or 800 million dollars in aid, but you have to spend it in these ways with our assistance and work. Um, buying only American products, only American products. Yeah. having Americans oversee the projects, yeah. all those. And, and, and we're only talking about development aid. We're not talking about military exactly. aid, which is a completely different... That's another, yeah, another yeah. issue altogether. Right. Even, things that, even the development aid is just, is just a direct just transfer to their general revenue funds, essentially. For, for, for Egypt? For, for uh, Israel. Yes. Yes. Is that common? In, is Israel the... Kind no, it's the only case. It's the only case. It's to be the, the special snowflake in this equation. Right. <laughs> um, but this is important to know in terms of, you know, when, when the U.S., um, uh, after 2004, uh, this is post-9-11, when um, uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, started making Egypt of its focus um, for its democracy aid programs in the Middle East, uh, started pressuring the government... Uh, 
basically to do better on democracy in a nutshell. Um, there was a lot of resistance, particularly within, within one ministry that deals with all of the foreign aid, and one minister in particular who developed this reputation amongst U.S. diplomats uh, for being um, a formidable um, uh, opponent in some ways. Um, so she would say, um, the U.S. ambassador t uh, then, uh, to Egypt at the time, told me that she had said in one meeting that this, that this, the U.S.'s insistence that money be spent towards uh, particular reforms, she called it an indecent proposal. <laughs> um, and this was repeated not only by the ambassador but she's, by various diplomats as well. Too. She's it's, seen too many American movies. <laughs> but, then there's, but there's something fundamentally that the diplomats who were working with her in those sessions would acknowledge of like, you know, obviously we don't agree with her, but she's not wrong either. I mean, but this is something, you know, within the power dynamics that we have to reckon with. Um, and she for sure has her own political motives for why she doesn't want to, to be cooperative or from her government's perspective be cooperative. Uh, but this is something, again, if you're dealing with aid, uh, it's useful to know all of these, these moving pieces. So one other kind of setting the context, at least for my own figuring out what's going on. For international aid, does, uh, is, do our policies stay relatively consistent over time? I know, mm -hmm. like, for example, Israel being a case where maybe it has stayed consistent over time. Mm -hmm. but. Are we looking at when a new president come in, comes in, do they just kind of tear up all the old forts, forces, uh, sources of aid and start all over, or is it a pretty stable uh, level of investment? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it, there's an enormous amount of continuity, I think, in general, particularly with, uh, with aid to the Middle East, and that reflects the, the geopolitical situation. The fact that this region is important for the U.S.'s uh, security interests, um, the peace uh, agreement with Israel, etc. And so this notion that you could have, you know, if you didn't like the policy and you, were the pre you became the president uh, the next day, that you would just overturn it is just a non-starter, given the delicacy of the situation, um, which many people are not happy with. I think that, the, that there was a frustration in the years leading up to the Arab uprisings in 2011 that, you know, well, why isn't the U.S. being um, pressuring and holding regimes in the region accountable? for um, a repressive behavior, um, restrictions in general on civil liberties. Um, and I think to your question, in some ways, 2011, many people thought could be something different. In other words, there are lots of scholars who th think about uh, fiscal crises or revolutionary moments as the only kind of moments you have to do something radical and to have a change in policy. That this is a moment where governments can kind of step back and say, maybe we haven't been engaging with the region in the right way. Maybe this is an opportunity and a moment to, to have a really a serious readjustment of policy. Um, and I naively at that time, because I was in Egypt at that moment, and in some ways this week and the previous weeks have been a bit bittersweet because this is the, the eighth anniversary of the Arab Spring. Um, and I was in Egypt throughout all of it. Um, and at this moment I remember because the feeling then was, was extraordinarily euphoric. Um, and the United States was trying to figure out how it wanted to respond to what was happening. Egypt is an enormously important partner. Um, it's important for uh, our security interests. Um, we have millions and millions of people who are saying we do not want this regime in power anymore, a regime that the United States and other governments as well uh, supported. Um, so if you're the United States and you're seeing millions of people in the streets saying they, they, do, they, they want this regime to go, what do you do? Yeah. And this is a very delicate situation. And so we have 
I don't think we'll, we'll have the full record for maybe another 30 years right. where things have been fully declassified. But from the, th the, the, um, the things that have been written thus far, um, uh, a book by David Kirkpatrick, which, is, which came out a few months ago, um, that relies on a lot of interviews with diplomats about what was actually going on during this time frame. Did, did you see uh, Kirkpatrick tried to get into Cairo they today they and they wouldn't let him they in? They, they detained him? They back to London, yeah. yeah. This, is, this used to be um, the uh, New York Times correspondent in Cairo. Um, during the revolution. He's now, I think, based in, in, in London. Um, but he wrote a book, um, whose name I'm forgetting at this moment, um, kind of looking at this time frame, the first couple of years of Egypt's uprising up until uh, the coup. Mm -hmm. If you ask Egyptians, it's not a coup, but the second revolution. Right, the second for revolution. For some Egyptians. Some Egyptians uh, think. We'll get into the details we'll get into of that. that. Yeah, that yeah, brought yeah. President Sisi into power as well, too. But this was a moment that many people were really hoping, and I think a great many Egyptians hoping as well, that the United States would do something a bit differently. And, you know, I'll say in fairness that I think if you're the United States government in this situation, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because, and this is why I think the Obama administration was, was quite careful in the early stages in January of 2011. Because if you come out too strongly in support of the people, then that's an opportunity potentially for the Mubarak regime to say, the United States is doing this. It's not. It's not actually right. owned by the people, um, and so you want to keep the focus on the people. That this is coming from the citizens of the country, and you don't want the footprint of the United States on this. Um, at the same time, you, many people within the U.S. government, wanted to send a signal to the people as well that we're supportive of you, broadly mm -hmm. defined, even if they had themselves at that time hadn't figured it out. Um, so I think, you know, the, the delicacy of all this, oh, the David Kirkpatrick, uh, book Greg is telling me, or showing me on Google, is Into the Hands of the Soldiers. He needs to now give me, like, some profits from this book. <laughs> for our esteemed audience. Into the Hands of the Soldiers, Freedom and Chaos in Egypt and the Middle East. Which has, you know, one hand basically being kicked out of, you know, Egypt today, right, uh, right. as the case may be, too. But again, to your question this moment of, like, the, the difficulty of, of, of changing um, uh, directions, uh, given the delicacy of the situation, I think there had, just hasn't been, um, I think just there isn't, a, there isn't a toleration for risk of any sort, I think. And I think that that's obviously frustrating for, for people that work on this region, for scholars of the region, and certainly for citizens of the region that might like to see something different. So we basically don't want democracy in the Arab world, right? We, meaning the United States of America, so the United States government. So it's interesting you say that because I was going over um, old interview notes uh, three days ago from an interview I had with a woman who worked uh, at the embassy, maybe in 2007. And she was adamant, you know, you know, at the time in 2007, even all throughout the 2000s, up until Egypt during the 1990s and 2000s, people would certainly never say that things in Egypt were amazing and safe and, you know, democratic. No, no one was saying that, but they would say at the end of the day, Egypt is not perfect, but it's stable. And so you hear this word constantly in English and in Arabic that Egypt is stable, it's a stable country, and this is, amongst other things, with the value of the relationship. Not perfect, but it's stable. Um, and when I was going over these interview notes, um, uh, this diplomat said, you know, and she was exasperated, and she said, there were some expletives like along the way with it, but she- This is a family podcast. This is a family podcast, so I will not say that, but she said emphatically, this country is not stable. It just has the veneer of stability. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of a, a comment she made about basically it would just take a spark to set things off. And that struck me even then at that point for me because if you were living in Egypt and depending on where you were living, you could sense growing tension in the country. 
that was 2007 I mentioned, and that kind of feeling of things being, it's hard to articulate it, but just being off or heavy in the city uh, would increase in the years thereafter. You know, and she said, you know, after making that comment about, you know, this, this country is not stable, despite what people are trying and pitching, hope, hopefully, um, to audiences around the world, she said, you know, um, like the U.S. does not want like a dem democratic change. And another diplomat who said, quite candidly, um, you know, well, the U.S. wants democracy unless it's, you know, with uh, a Muslim government. You know, this is very candid. These are these are these are diplomats that are working. They're heavily involved in negotiations at this time. And the rhetoric at that time, this is again under the, the Bush administration, um, uh, George W. Bush administration, was yes, we want elections, yeah. yes, we want democracy, and Palestinian parliamentary elections were the first sign in 2006 that well, if the elections bring someone into power that we're not happy with, then we're not okay with democracy. Ha happened in Egypt too, and right? It happened in Egypt, of course, too. Yeah. Tell the folks. When? <laughs> no, about about in the Bush administration, the push on Mubarak to have more open parliamentary elections. Yeah, I mean, right. That was that was oh five. five? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is there. There's more pressure for this. There are there are some people in the administration saying that maybe we should stop pushing so hard on elections, but maybe we should push on other aspects of opening the political space. Um, but but you I saw think the ascension right. of the brotherhood is this what you're right. Well, yeah, yeah. But I think the listeners need to know that Go for it, yeah. that right in in oh five, mm. uh, the Bush administration, which after nine eleven basically said what the what the Arab world needs is more democracy, mm -hmm. because in you know democracies don't produce terrorists. But you know we can that that's something one can argue. But uh, you know I, I, people in Italy during the the Red right. Brigades might feel differently, and we've got a monument in Oklahoma City. Right. Uh, right, right here in the United States, uh, but it was a theory, yeah. right? You open up these political systems and and you let people express their views mm -hmm. publicly and contest for elections, and they won't blow stuff up. <laughs> so, the Bush administration, I think, was sincere in that yes, belief. I think, I think that they were sincere, if naive. If and, naive, and I right? Think it's important because there's a nice link with some of the dynamics we're dealing with now in 2019 right. uh, in this country in terms of thinking about the value of experts and the value or right. lack thereof of expertise. Right. Let's, l l let me go yeah. back just oh, to, sure. so people can, yeah. right, so so they did push yeah. Mubarak and he had a, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, he had a relatively more open parliamentary election mm -hmm. in which the Muslim Brotherhood got 20% of the seats. As running as independents. Running as independents, they couldn't run as a party, mm -hmm. but everybody knew who the, who the Brotherhood candidates are. And then in 06, if I recall right, the Palestinian elections, the uh, Palestinian parliamentary elections won by Hamas, mm -hmm. which is the Muslim Brotherhood in, uh, in the Palestinian territories. Mm -hmm. Well, these two election results, I think, dampened the enthusiasm of people in the Bush administration for democracy in the Arab world. So in 2005, then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice made a, a speech at the American University of Cairo you know, again, like on, you know, and, and grand, uh, with grand rhetoric, uh, saying that again, the U.S., and again, it was a recognition, this is post 9 11, and, and as Greg mentioned, you, for the first time, democracy enters into the national security strategy. It was already always there in the backdrop, so to speak, of policy, but for the first time after 9 11, this connection that, you know, in places where there's lack of opportunity, there isn't democracy, that this fosters conditions for extremism, yep. maybe terrorism, et cetera. And so, this is this is where the, the kind of renewed push for things came. So Condoleezza Rice comes to Cairo and she makes this big speech saying, look, in the past, 
we supported wholeheartedly authoritarian governments and we shouldn't have done that necessarily and you know we are here for democracy, open for the people, et cetera, et cetera. That was 2005, I think, late 2005. Right. It was, it was Greg, Greg right when she becomes Secretary exactly. of State. Right. Exactly. Uh, and then you, you, again, you have the, uh, the, the elections in Egypt and then also um, uh, in Palestine. And things change very quickly. And so what happens? After, after 2006, immediately the rhetoric is, is brought down. And Arabs in the region see this, they hear this, they know this, and they weren't, you know, in other words, in 2004, if you were telling um, Egyptians, you know, that the U.S. this time really, really cares about democracy, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you think about, you know, and for, for Americans that are engaged, whether from the government side or working with NGOs, etc., um, how do you convince people of your efforts that, no, no, this time we really mean it, this time we're really serious about it? Um, even if it delivers outcomes that maybe don't necessarily align with where the U.S. would ideally maybe want uh, the country to be. And so after 2006, you, you again, it was a recognition for many, I'll just say from the Egyptian context uh, when I was there, that Egyptians were like, well, see, we told you so. You didn't really yeah. care about this. You right. only care about it, or governments only care about it when it you know, fits their strategic imperatives. And then we do it again. Yep. Right? With uh, President sure Obama. Well, it. President <laughs> Obama yeah. going to Cairo. Yeah. And basically giving a speech somewhat similar to Condoleezza Rice's yeah. speech. Uh, re-engagement with the Muslim world after this trauma of the Iraq War. And, uh, uh, you know, we want human rights. We want all these things. And meant and, to reset the Bush era. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And then 2011 happens. Yeah. And while the administration, you know, those, those days in Tahrir Square, yeah. one can argue about how the administration's position evolved in the, in the yeah. what would we say, like, 20 days, 21 days. Before Mubarak's Yeah, from, yeah. from January 25th to Mubarak's resignation, yeah. right? Afterwards, the United States was supportive of an electoral process that brought to power a Muslim Brotherhood president and a Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamist-dominated parliament. Right. When the Islamist-dominated parliament was uh, kicked out, mm -hmm. we were, eh, okay, maybe that not the best thing. Right. And then when Mor President Morsi is overthrown in a military coup, mm -hmm. we refuse to call it a military coup because if we called it a military coup, we'd have to cut off we're aid. We're, we're obli legally, we legally obliged to cut off aid. So we never called it a military coup, even though it was a textbook military coup. So I, 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 I think... There's a lot of rhetorical dancing right. that happens all over the place during this time. So even someone as... I think in their own ways, both George W. Bush after 9-11 and Barack Obama were both committed to the idea of democracy mm -hmm. as an American value that we want to encourage in the Middle East. And when they saw it, they moved away quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, just to kind of circle back to Justin, what you had said about, about you know, policy directions and whatnot, I mean, you can want something, but again, whether you have... You know, there's the political political will in, in Washington to have patience with that, um, and to know that you know if you're trying to challenge 30 plus years of authoritarian rule, that's you know t turning that around towards some idealized version of democracy is going to take a long time, and you know is going to be messy. And anyone I think who reads the news would know that. Certainly scholars know that. Um, but you know. You know, there, there's a lot of discussion now. This, I, it's, I mentioned eight year, the eight-year anniversary of the Arab uprisings. Um, while the Arab Spring, you know, failed, you know, it's 
the Arab winter and all sorts of terrible seasonal. The winter of Arab discontent. Winter of Arab discontent. I wanted. I yeah. tried to get that to be the the name. Right, the winter of Arab discontent. It was well. First off, it happened in. But first off, first off, it happened in the winter. Right, January, February, March. It happened in the winter. Yeah, that's true. It ha and and it certainly was an expression of discontent. <laughs> Look, I put I I I published that in a, in a piece in 2012. Was that the foreign affairs piece? No, it was it was something I did for a think tank in Washington, oh. and I, I just and it never caught on. This Arab Spring thing caught I on. I just the seasonal stuff. I you know there's we can kind of you know you know bicker about what we want to call it, Arab uprisings, Arab revolutions. Arab I think I think Arab uprisings is becoming this is my the favorite. I think it's 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 a little yeah. more accurate. But regardless, I, I think that. You know, you know, maybe six months into the uprisings, uh, not just Egypt, but throughout the Arab world, or even a year after, you know, you have pundits and not so many scholars, more pundits kind of declaring them to be dead. Well, this, everyone said this was going to be such a good idea, and look where it got us. I'm like, well, if you, if you are a scholar of, of social movements or revolution broadly defined, you know that revolutions take a long time. Um, we can reference our own revolution, we can talk about the French Revolution, um, what was happening in Europe in 1848. Um, these things take a long time. And so it's, I, think, I still think it's a bit um, short-sighted to, to declare what's been happening to be dead. I think it's a process. It's a process. But, um, but it's not good. Oh, it's pretty terrible. I'm right? Not gonna, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to put pretty, on the situation. Right, right. Yeah. Syria, yeah. Yemen, yeah. Libya... Not good. No, profoundly bad. Yeah. Profoundly bad. Um, and I think that, you know, I was in Egypt um, for a couple of weeks over our winter break here. Um, and I was struck by, I spend a lot of, uh, of my time uh, these days for work um, in North Africa, but predominantly uh, Morocco and Egypt these days. And this last trip to Egypt was really more depressing uh, than the previous trips. And it, it keeps getting a little bit darker. Um, and I think that when you talk with people, and these are friends and colleagues of mine who were very much um, so uh, politically engaged, um, activists that were very much involved uh, with what was happening in the in the period up to the the uprising in 2011, and you know throughout the messiest parts of it in Egypt, that things are so bad in Egypt these days, and and the environment is so restrictive. Um, that there's a, a deep sense of, in some cases, PTSD from people who've been through a lot. Um, and in some ways today, the statistics vary, but you know, most people, I think, agree that the current situation in Egypt politically is more repressive than it was under the Mubarak regime. I, I think that's the unanimous yeah, sentiment I mean, yeah, of people numbers, who look the, at Egypt. The numbers are terrible in terms of thinking about political prisoners, uh, despite what the government might say. Um, and you know, political deaths. Yeah, and if you think about where where Egypt was in kind of the imagination of many people around the world, and that kind of first romantic idea of like what was happening, um, and the focus on the power of the people to change things, and you know, people in Egypt um, for years leading up to 2011, even as the situation economically, politically became worse, would say, you know, no matter how, how hard it gets, you know, the the Egyptians are not a revolutionary people which is a crappy thing to say, <laughs> to be sure. Yeah. Um, and people, you know, I, I myself, I think, probably said it at one point, even in, like, 2009, 2010, when things 
really were getting bad, where you would just wonder how, especially the majority of, of the of Egyptians, um, the majority of Egyptians uh, uh, are struggling. Um, there are a hundred million, I think, at last count. Um, already, a hundred million. Yeah. Wow. It might be that was last I would have guessed. I would have guessed. I would have guessed eighty-five million. A yeah. hundred million Egyptians. I mean, eighty-five was a, a while ago. I, I, I ought to keep up. Yeah. Um, so if the situation, you know, I remember feeling in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and this is after a couple of protest movements by a group called the April Six Movement. Um, we had increasing um, protests by labor against some of the economic reforms that were going and the forms of privatization and current capitalism that were going on in the two thousands. And you could feel the situation in 2009 and 2010. And I remember saying to some of my friends, you know, like, well, what's the breaking point? Because it, 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 it feels terrible. You can, you can and sense how stressful life is for people here. And no one, I mean, this is why, amongst other things, between Tunisia and Egypt, why it was such a surprise that this finally happened. And so now, in 2019, those problems haven't gone away. The economic situation, the economic grievances uh, that kind of shaped, they weren't the, the, the sole reason for the, the, the protests that we saw in the Arab world, but they were an important part of it. Those the sources of those grievances have not gone away. And I think the, the situation uh, for governments in Tunisia has been a challenge. How do you deal with the economic situation? How do you keep, you know, keep, keep people engaged? Um, there, there are still waves of uh, small-level protests throughout the Arab world that don't get enough they don't get coverage, but they're happening in Morocco. They're happening in Tunisia. In Egypt, you can't protest right. now, but there are people that are, are, are enormously unhappy. So, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a, a situation, I think, when people ask about, you know, well, is, are things really dead? It's, you know, to, as Greg said, things are, things are terrible. Um, but I, I still try and keep a long view of thinking that there's still hope maybe ahead. So uh, before we open up to the, to the audience who's been very patient, mm -hmm. Let, let's bring it back to America and democracy aid. Mm -hmm. You and I, I think, agree on a lot of the analyticals here, but probably disagree on whether the United States should promote democracy mm -hmm. in this part of the world. So given this track record, do you think that there's still some usefulness in terms of actual democracy promotion to these kinds of small bore projects that the United States funds in places like Morocco and Egypt mm -hmm. when at the top level when when the issue of democracy actually comes across the radar screen of presidents and secretaries of state mm -hmm. and national security advisors they're actually very nervous about it mm -hmm. so there's a tension there is there any effectiveness if you want to see a more democratic Middle East yeah in doing these small bore things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. There's a tension in this in general, whether in the scholarly literature that tries to think about and talk about things of is it working or not, or in thinking about the utility of, mm -hmm. well, if we know we have these contradictions that the United States is giving an enormous amount of money for military assistance in Egypt, mm -hmm. what is the effect of $20,000 here for a democracy yeah. project? Um, the answer to that, I think, as with everything, is complicated. It's, it's complicated. Um, if you're a civil society, just as an example, if you're a civil society organization, let's say in Tunisia or Morocco, and you're benefiting from a grant that is helping you to organize and educate people in your community, um, and you're getting a lot of res positive responses, is that effective? Yeah, it's effective. Is it helping you to do your work and to develop? Yes. How does it all connect? That's the trickier bit. Um, I will say that the way that the United States in general has talked about democracy um, in the region, I think, has always been problematic. Um, there are a lot of scholars, uh, more critical scholars of development and democracy aid that say, 
the way the United States and a couple other donor governments can even conceptualize democracy needs some work. Um, so just as an example, um, years ago, uh, an Egyptian woman that I spoke with who was not supportive of U.S. foreign policy in the region and thus not supportive of the U.S. even engaging in democracy promotion said, look, well, first of all, why, why is the U.S. insisting on, let's say, particular kinds of electoral assistance? Why, are, why isn't the United States focusing more on education or health? And her argument was basically that, well, we can make an argument and say that education, support for education and health is the foundation of a healthy democracy. And so if you have um, a, a struggle with illiteracy in Egypt, let's say, well, then focusing on teaching people to read is an important skill, right, mm -hmm. and, and thinking about foundational aspects of it. But she also raised something important, which is, again, if you have, if the civil society that you think should be the recipient of your, aids, of your foreign aid, or democracy in this case, doesn't want to be associated with it for foreign policy reasons, as is the case, are there other avenues and ways uh, of supporting that? And so some scholars say, look, if the U.S. has an image problem, as it does to be sure, then maybe it makes more sense for the U.S. to support more multilateral efforts towards democracy. So helping to support other organ European organizations uh, through international organizations, et cetera, to acknowledge um, that it can't be maybe a straight actor in this situation. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's one component and aspect of it. I think... I think that there's a, a great reticence to rehaul even our way of thinking and our programming on, on these issues in general, but I think that that's one important aspect as well to think about, that the U.S. can want to support, let's say, civil society in Egypt, but if some members of civil society think that that aid or accepting the aid is going to cause them problems and they don't want to be associated with it, well, you have to, again, these are kind of the ethical issues even of aid that I'm really interested too, of like, well, you want to do, you want to do good things, but if if doing this particular kind of aid causes more disruptions to civil society and causes civil society in a country to turn against each other, maybe this isn't the best route or the best strategy to doing that too. So um, I think a lot of rethinking needs to be done, but I, in some ways I think that the, there's not bureaucratically a lot of support for that right now. And that's disappointing too in, in, in terms of thinking about opportunities that really were, I think, available in 2011 to do something mm -hmm. different. Right. Anybody have any questions? Yeah. Yes, I have a question. So regarding that aid program for the democracy, mm -hmm. as far as I know, there are many kind of theories regarding like determinants of like supporting the democracy and like the causal uh, the causal relationship between economic development and democracy is also a little bit vague. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the program, I want to know like what kind of theoretical framework could be supporting that program. And that was my first question, mm -hmm. but as I hearing as I'm hearing that discussion there, so actually the targeting of the program itself is varying. Like sometimes the United States want that country or that area to be democratic, democratic, mm -hmm. democrat, be democratic, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're not. And also there are a lot of factors surrounding the target itself. Yeah. But so the target itself is changing. I mean, being surrounded and being impacted by the other factors, but. Then the, the program itself is actually targeting the purpose of the program. I mean, the, the purpose being like volatile. Right. Yeah. So right. then what's going on there, the program, that's actually one Right. Of the so I, I think there, there's probably two, two issues in here. One is the general idea of the relationship of economic development to democracy. Yeah. Right. The, 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 the very early stuff back in the 60s that says unless you get to a certain per capita income, you're not going to be democratic. Yeah. And then and then the 
you know, is the target the top of the regime? Is it yeah. is it national elections or is the target, you know, developing democratic ethos in civil society that one hopes is going to filter up and yeah. out? Yeah, I think this is a it's, a it's a great question. I think, you know, I would say that, you know, first of all, there are there are really thoughtful people within USAID, whether their voices get hurt, you know, hurt out and policy is a different story altogether. But I'll tell you that in the early 1990s, when people were first putting together um, the first proper democracy, pro democracy programs throughout the world, when they were thinking about, okay, well, where do we start? You know, what, is a, what does a template for a democracy program look like? They were looking at the work that people in our tribe do. So they were looking at scholars of democratization and the assumptions that were really popular then, which is, which was, and in some, in some ways I guess still is, is dominating conversation, unfortunately, which is that support for economic reform uh, will eventually, will give rise to political liberalization and maybe democracy. But it worked um, in China, right? So we can, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we can go full speed ahead yeah. on that too. Yeah. So initially that was, again, you know, if we're being fair, it was kind of a learning process. So they, they began with that. And that made sense in some ways in a place like Egypt, because if you were to, to talk with President Mubarak and, and the Egyptian government in the 1990s and say, well, we want to support a democracy program. Um, I mean, they may not tell you to go to hell implicitly, but they're not going to talk with you for using that word and feeling like they're bullied. So the way the diplomats even, they found that if they pitched things in terms of economic reform, that was the way that they got the audience um, that they needed to, to even have a foothold from which to even talk about programs in the region. And, and a lot of Americans believe that. And they still do. Yeah. And I think actually whether we're talking about events in the Middle East or even thinking about politics in this country, you know, these are moments where we, you know, it's kind of, well, maybe we, we need to go back and revisit those assumptions. You know, it's maybe things, not shockingly, are more complicated than we might think they are. I mean, you know, we do have some, we do have good scholarship that does show a connection between that. But in an authoritarian regime, we also know that, you know, to be an authoritarian regime and to survive, you're pretty crafty, right? And so if you're forced to do some sort of, some tenets of economic reform like privatization, because you have to to, um, to get international support, et cetera, you're going to engineer it so that you're staying in power, right? So in the academic literature, you know, it assumes that authoritarian regimes are invested in the mechanisms by which economic reform goes to democratization. And we know that that's fundamentally not true. Um, and that's really important for people to know. So or, 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 or yeah. you want your friends to get rich. I do too. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically, that's basically the, 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 One of the things that strikes me about this conversation, just as not knowing the literature, but is the focus on elections. Mm -hmm. On one hand, if you made me like sit around and talk about democracy and I didn't know history from the past 10 years, mm -hmm. I would have thought, yes, elections, that would be the thing we need to be shooting for makes good sense and then kind of watch it play out in almost joke form in lots of places right where we we have elections in all kinds of places that yeah. aren't really free and fair elections but hey look or elections or we have elections in a place like iraq which actually are real yeah. right people do vote and it and people go to parliament and governmental decisions are based upon you know the balance of power in parliament but what was the cost yeah. to achieve that, mm -hmm. right? Time for one more, maybe? Yeah. Um, I wonder what do you think about U.S. withdrawal from, from Afghanistan and Syria, and what will be the destiny of uh, foreign aid in this country? As well? An easy question. 
<laughs> so the question was thoughts about uh, withdrawal from both uh, Syria and Afghanistan and well, whether intervention is good and when is it good to leave? I think. I, to be honest, I don't know. I think that, again, to kind of circle back to you know the, the phrase, it's complicated, it's complicated. I think that um, I'm not uh, I'm not a, a scholar of, of current Afghan politics, so I'll put that on the table, and also more uh, directly also Syrian politics. But um, I think that the the notion of withdrawal is simplistic and naive, um, and I think it's I think it's I think it's disastrous. I think that no one, as complicated as Afghanistan has been, I think that withdrawing. Um, complicates the U.S. situation, complicates, I think, the situation for many Afghans as well, too. Um, yeah, I don't, to be honest, I don't know. I think that this is an area like a, a lot of uh, people and scholars, um, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't say with certainty where, where any of these actions are going to lead. But from my perspective, I think a withdrawal, a complete withdrawal, um, is really uh, problematic. So on March 21st, Ryan Crocker, former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, former dean of the Bush School, We'll be back on campus giving a talk on U.S. policy in Afghanistan, and Ryan has very strong opinions on on the issue of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I feel a little different than 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 Aaron does. I I think 17 years in Afghanistan uh, has been an awfully long time. I'm not really sure what six more years will do to change the situation. Uh, I don't think that the United States went into Afghanistan to democratize it. Uh, it would have been nice if we could have provided a stable governance in Afghanistan, but we didn't want to invest either the time or the manpower, the soldiers, to do that. Uh, Syria is a very different story. I mean, we didn't really intervene in Syria except in the, in the most small bore way. Right? There was never more than a few thousand American troops in Syria at any one time with a very specific anti-ISIS mission. Uh, we really didn't want to... Our policy was Assad must go and the Syrian people must have a free choice. But the United States never invested really any substantial resources in that. And then there's Libya, where we did invest substantial resources in, in helping to bring down the Qaddafi regime. And then we said, okay, good luck, guys, right? So Americans, American policymakers who kind of are getting tired of the Middle East will say to you, we get criticized no matter what we do. We go into Iraq and Afghanistan, we stay a long time, and people criticize us, and we don't get very good results. We go into Libya, we don't stay a long time, we don't get very good results and people criticize us. We don't go into Syria basically at all. And there's no good results and people criticize us. So you, I, I think that you know, Aaron talked about people in Egypt getting fed up and you can kind of tell leading up to 2011. I think you can kind of tell that people in Washington are getting fed up with the Middle East. And, and uh, it's no accident I think that in the last three presidential elections, the candidate who was more dovish on the Middle East won the election, including Donald Trump, who I think was more dovish than Hillary Clinton 
you know, criticize the wars, we got to get out, right? And so I, I, I think that there's a certain uh, Middle East fatigue that's uh, occupying a lot of American policymakers. I can say we'll have another talk um, with a former Bush School student who currently is in Afghanistan, working with the Afghanistan government, and she has strong opinions about the peace deal that's being negotiated currently with the U.S. government and with the Taliban and uh, concerns about the Afghan government's elected government not playing a significant role. So you will get to hear some conversations about that coming up. I, uh, I would just echo that things are complicated. It's, um, and it's not only is it complicated, but not my area of expertise. Uh, but I can say just... It is hard to watch um, when you, you know, when you do have friends in these places, and you do see kind of some of the concerns. For example, in Afghanistan, with concerns about women's rights, as powers maybe turned back over to the Taliban, the women there that have stepped up and taken leadership roles and engaged in education efforts, uh, really, that are left in kind of limbo when the negotiation is with an entity that. Was part of the reason why we went into Afghanistan to begin with. Um, yeah. I don't think that was the reason we went into oh. Afghanistan, but that okay. Wasn't, that wasn't the reason, yeah. but that was an important part of, that came out of that, too. Right. And I think that even in the early 90s, before there was a, a will to go into Afghanistan, people were people were paying attention to what was happening under the Taliban. And I right. think that there were, there were uh, there was a, I can't remember the name of the Afghan women's group who was, again, this is the early days of the internet, who were sending out videos of yeah. women getting stoned and all sorts of other terrible things. So people are aware of it then. And then post 9-11, of course, there's reason and rationale to, to go in. And, you know, I, I just worry, you know, we think about withdrawing because to be sure people are right to be fatigued, I think, especially for people who have served there. Um, not just served there once, but many times in some cases. Um, but what are the consequences of a full withdrawal, right? What, what, you know, would you be in the same place 10, 15 years from now? I also think it just underscores, too, the, the problems that I think people in Washington have communicating what the U.S. is doing in other parts of the world, especially in the Middle East. You know, what's, you know, if, if this is about security, how are these actions a part of um, U.S. security interests? How is this a part of um, defending U.S. security? Um, and I think that, in general, that whether we're talking about democracy aid or military efforts overseas, that a better job uh, could be done in terms of explaining to, to the public in this country uh, the rationale and the logic of what's going on. So maybe what we need is a clear U.S. grand strategy. <gasps> oh, there's, that. Oh, there's that word again. Grand That's strategy. What? <laughs> but, but what does that mean? Does no. That mean? And on that note... Thanks I think again. I think we have to thank our audience. Yeah. I think thank so I, I think we have to ask our we have to thank our hosts mm -hmm. at Downtown Uncorked here in Bryan, Texas, and to our guests. and to thank our guest, me, yeah. Professor Aaron Snyder. Thank you. And we will be bringing you more episodes soon. Thank you. <laughs>